Well, I want to begin by just merely making an observation about the Bible. One of the things that is sprinkled throughout the Bible is prayers. There are prayers of spoken by lots of different people in lots of different circumstances. And so you just, just start thinking about okay, Bible, prayer, and uh, just kind of any book of the Bible almost is uh, got some sorts of, of prayers in there. I mean, in Genesis, you read the prayers of Abraham, Hagar, Jacob. In Exodus, you read of Moses when he prayed on various occasions. Joshua has some prayers recorded in the book of Joshua. In 1 Samuel, there's prayers of, of Hannah and Samuel and David and 2 Samuel. In 1 Kings, rather, you prayers of Solomon and Elijah. In 2 Kings, you see Elisha's prayers and Hezekiah's prayers. And that's just a, a few examples of the number of prayers in the Bible. I think the Psalms are a book of prayers. They are praises to God. Some of them are really direct prayers. The Gospels are saturated with the prayers of Jesus. Acts records the prayers of the apostles and the early church. The book of Revelation either has, also has some prayers of praise to God, some prayers of martyrs who long for their blood to be justified. And this morning as we turn to God's Word, we're going to look at one of the prayers of the Apostle Paul. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 1. Our text this morning covers verses 9 through 11. And as you're turning there, I want you to think about these prayers in the Bible. I want you to think particularly about their application to our lives. Because there are times, particularly in the Old Testament, when these prayers are unique and just kind of one of a kind in distinctive circumstances which don't really apply to our situation today. I mean, think about Joshua. As he's leading his people into the conquest of the land, Israel was in the battle with the Amorites. And they were winning the battle, but the sun was setting. And Joshua knew that if the sun set under the cover of darkness, the Amorites would get away and would not be defeated. But Joshua prayed, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood, and the moon stood, so that Israel had enough light to gain the victory. And, and I say, what a prayer. And in Joshua 10.14, we read, There was no day like that before it or after it, when the Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. And, and even that verse says, that was a totally unique circumstance. Hadn't ever happened before. Hasn't ever happened afterwards. In other words, I think what, what's being said there is, it's not a prayer for us to pray. We ought not to pray that the sun stands still. Now, so I know sometimes some college students who are staying up really late and writing their paper and they need more hours in the day might be longing and, and praying for just an extended period of day or, or maybe preachers who haven't quite finished their Sunday morning message or might be tempted to pray this. I've been tempted to pray this prayer before. Oh, oh, moon stands still that I might have five more hours in the night to finish my message. But we ought not to pray those kind of prayers. Or, or the New Testament, even prayers of Jesus are, are unique to Jesus. Consider His high priestly prayer. John chapter 17. The night before He was crucified, He said, Now, Father, glorify Me together with Yourself with the glory which I had with You before the world was. Now, now, now there's a prayer that only the Son of God could pray. I mean... 
there's no way for us to pray this prayer. I mean, first of all, we weren't there with God, with glory before the world was. And, and we ought not to pray for ourselves glory with Jesus and with God right, to stand right next to them. No, no, no. Heaven's all about God and we are bowing before His throne. So we ought not to pray that as well. But, but there are many prayers in the Bible that you, you read about and you pray about and you say, I can pray that prayer. If you're struggling with barrenness, you would do well to look to the prayer of Hannah and think deeply about them who, who was barren, who prayed to the Lord and just said, God, be gracious and give me a son. I'll give him to you. Hannah's prayer of thanks would be one to really meditate on. I think it's totally appropriate to pray Hannah's prayer. I think if you're going through spiritual depression, the Psalms, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 are, are very good prayers for you to pray. You pray Asaph's prayers back to God. If you're battling with sin, unconfessed sin, it's covered up, read David's prayers of repentance. Psalm 51, Psalm 32. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Those are good prayers to pray. Plead the Lord to lift the burden from your shoulders. Or if you're facing persecution for Jesus because of Situation at work, maybe you're you're standing for something. Read the prayers of the early Christians and pray their pray their prayers. Lord, take notice of their threats and grant that your bond servants may speak your word with all confidence. Right? Just take notice of them, God, and and help that we speak with confidence. Well, this morning as we look at Paul's prayer, I'm just saying this is applicable for us to pray in every way. Paul priv. Paul lived after the cross, which helps make a prayer applicable to us. He's praying for the church, of which we're a part here this morning. He's praying for things that we ought to pray. And so this morning, as we read the text, I, I want to give you two applications. First is this. Do you pray this way for others in the church? Do you pray this way that Paul prayed? And second, do you... Is this prayer being answered in your life? Because these are the sorts of prayers we ought to pray, and these are the sorts of answers to prayer we ought to see. Let's, let's, let's just read Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11. Paul says this, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Do you pray this kind of prayer for others? Do you pray this kind of prayer for yourself? Paul's prayer here is very typical of all of his prayers. In fact, I say if you study the prayers of Paul, it, it could have a revolutionary impact on your prayer life. As you see the things that Paul prays for that's different than what we pray for. I mean, our prayers are far more physically concerned than Paul's prayers were. And remember this, when Paul prays, he prays for Christian growth. He prays for maturity and understanding and, and purity and righteousness and wisdom and strength. Noticeably absent from Paul's prayers are prayers like what we pray for. Safety and travel employment opportunities, physical health, 
Not that those things are wrong. Those are burdens of our heart. God says to cast our cares and our burdens upon Him. Those are entirely right to pray. But I think sometimes that we, we miss the, the spiritual aspect of Paul's prayer, which, by the way, are, are perhaps even more important because they deal with a greater reality. And if those prayers are answered, then some of these other physical concerns might fall into place a little easier. Paul's prayer here in Philippians sounds much like his prayers in the other epistles. Uh, I'll just read a few of them. Colossians 1. Listen to what Paul says in verses 9-12. through We pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Just abounding there for spiritual insight and knowledge and wisdom that we might walk pleasing to the Lord. Or, or 1 Thessalonians 3, 1-11, Now may our God and Father Himself and the Lord Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may our Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as you also do for you so that He may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. Do you ever pray that way? For yourself or for others? Father, I pray that the, the love would abound, that they would have love for others and for God, and that, that we might come and, and see one another. They would stand blameless before the day of Christ. That, that's what we prayed for. Those sorts of things. Or Ephesians 1, 17-19. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what the hope of His calling is, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe. He, he's just saying this, that in light of all the spiritual blessings that God has given us in the, in the first half of, the, of Ephesians chapter 1, he's just praying that God would open their eyes and open their hearts to see and understand all those things. Do you pray that God would help us, you or other people in the church maybe, to really see and understand the glories of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we work through our text this morning, I want you to constantly ask yourself, is this how I pray? Is this how I pray for others? Is this how I pray for myself? Well, the second application here as we go through these is this. Is this prayer being answered in your life? Paul's prayer could easily be prayed for us today. In fact, this week as I've been meditating on, on this text, as I've thought about many of you, I have just just prayed this prayer for you. God, I, I pray that their love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that they may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. I pray that for many of you. Just placed your name there and just, just said that said that prayer again. That's Tim Iverson or, or uh, Ryan Brown or Steve Halsell. Just I pray, God, that their love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so they may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ.
Just pray that prayer over and over this week as I thought about you all. Is that prayer being answered in your life? I guess that's the the next point of, of application. Really, we're going to see three things here in Paul's text. This is our outline. Paul is praying for love. He's praying for purity. He's praying for righteousness. And so as we work our way through the text, just ask yourself, am I increasing in love? Am I increasing in purity? Am I increasing in righteousness? Is God's righteousness working in my life? As we work through the text, I'll pull out those three applications. Is love growing in your life? Purity growing in your life? Is Christ's righteousness in your life? Now, before we jump into the text, I do want to make an observation just about how this fits in the greater paragraph of what Paul is saying. In verse 3, we begin to read, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And then he prays. Notice in verse 3, Paul begins by telling those in Philippi how, how thankful he is to God for them. And, and then verse 4, he tells how he's always praying to them with joy. In verses 5-8, through eight, he explains why he's so thankful and prayerful and joyful. Because they've participated and partnered with him in the Gospel. And he has a great affection for them, as we looked at last week. But now in verse 9, he's actually telling them what he's praying to them for to God for in other words verses 3 through 8 tell the reason why Paul's praying and now finally verses 9 through 11 we have the content of Paul's prayers and his content is this and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Well, let's look at our first point this morning. Praying for love. That's what he's praying for. You can see it right there in verse 9, right? And this I pray. Here it is. That your love may abound still more and more. Paul's praying for those in Philippi that they would have an, an ever increase of love in their lives. Now, it's, it's not that the Philippians lacked love. You know, they had a love for Paul and they sent him a financial gift to help him in his distress. They had a love for Epaphroditus, which you can read about in chapter 2. They'd heard that he was sick. They were distressed about that. Paul says, I want to bring him to you so he can be less concerned about your concern. And, and they were a loving church. He, he didn't need to tell them to love like he, he needed to tell the Corinthians who were unloving. He told the Corinthians, listen, love is patient and love is kind Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. The Corinthians needed to hear that because they were not loving as a church. But not so the Philippians. They had a love. And they're practicing that love. And Paul is simply praying that they would abound still more and more 
in their love. In many ways, the prayer sounds like that that Paul prayed in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 and 10, when he says, Now as to the love of the brethren, Thessalonians, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God how to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel, excel still more. Anyways, exactly the same prayer request. It's a request that, 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 that they know how to love. They've been taught of God to know how to love. But, but Paul is just praying that their love would abound, that it would increase, that it would grow. If they, were, if they were here, that they would be here. And if they were here, that they would be here. And wherever they were, that they would grow and increase. Pray for this in your life? Do you pray for this in the lives of others? When was the last time you prayed for someone that their love would abound? Is it being answered in your life? Do you see in your life an ever growing desire and capacity and ability to love others? Now, I want to make a couple of observations about this love. Verse 9. Notice that Paul gives no object of love. He, he doesn't pray that their love for God would abound still more and more. He doesn't pray that their love for others in the church would abound still more and more. Or that their love for those outside the church, maybe for Paul or Timothy or other Christians or other believers, or their love for the lost would abound. He, he's not, he doesn't have any object of prayer. He's ambiguous. I think it's intentional. Because I, I think Paul in general is just saying, I want your, your capacity to love to increase. He longs that the, those in Philippi be characterized by love, even as God the Father is characterized by love. And when you abound in love, your love for God will abound. And your love for others will abound. In fact, when you love God more, you will love others more. And in loving others more, you'll see God's grace and you'll love Him all that more. Which is really Jesus' great commandment, right? The the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is to love our neighbor as herself. This is what Paul's praying. That they would have this great abounding love in their life. But notice something else. And this, I think, is most interesting. Is that though Paul doesn't define the, give the object of love, he does define this kind of love. Because I think we can miss it oftentimes in this world of ours to think we know what love is. But he's defining this love. He says, I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. In other words, Paul's praying for a certain kind of love, a, a knowledgeable love and a discerning love. He's not praying for the sentimental love. He's not praying for an emotional love. He's not praying for an ignorant love or a blind love or an insensitive love. No, he's praying for a, a knowledgeable love, a, a discerning love. And I think really the best way to describe love is really by giving some examples. Like, like for instance, here's, here's an unknowledgeable love <clears throat> when I talk about child rearing. Proverbs 13.24 says this, He who withholds the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Solomon's talking here about corporal punishment, right? You apply the board of education to the seat of knowledge is what he is talking about here. He's talking about spanking, all right? The Bible talks about spanking. You know, in our day and age, it's frowned upon. And if you discipline your child unwisely, 
Right? You, you get in with the governmental authorities and you're in trouble. All it takes is some bruises, some school administrator sees, and you have a run in with DCFS and it's awful. I would say this, that nowhere in the Bible does it ever advocate anything that would get you in trouble with DCFS if done correctly and rightly. The Bible would not advocate any sort of disciplinary action that caused bruises in your body, but the Bible does advocate use of the rod. And I believe here we're talking about is we're talking about a slap on the skin which causes some pain but causes no damage. The reason is you can't reason with a four-year-old. They need to be taught right and wrong. You can't reason with them. The best way to reason with them is through their pain sensors to say, whoa, that was bad, I guess. And if they don't get the verbal teaching, right, you get the attention another way. It's, it's far better just to take them away by yourself into a bathroom someplace, turn on the fans they can't hear, other people, kids can't hear, calmly tell them how they sin, use the rod under control once to give a nice sting, and then afterwards, when they start crying, hug them and kiss them and affirm your love for them. Tell them you forgive them. Tell them that Jesus came to take away their sins and pray with them. That's what the Bible would talk about when it's talking about using the rod. Now, there are many in our society who claim that they have such a great love for their child that they could never, ever spank their child. Instead, I would contend that those people who do that rely on two things. They rely on timeouts and they rely upon screaming at their child, abusing their child verbally. You should never have to scream at your child. How many times have I screamed at you guys? You know, I think there was once I screamed at you guys. I think um, when I was preaching on um, Luke 15, remember I was talking about that father? I think that's one time I used to even said, because I've never seen my dad, he's so scary. You don't need to yell at your children. Teddy Roosevelt said, right? Speak softly and carry a big stick. That works a lot better. Okay? So your, your children should know love and grace, but they should know that when they're out, out of order that the rod is coming. But instead, parents will yell and scream and abuse their child in that way, and, and they think that they're doing so well because they're not spanking their child. Well, I know they mean well. But they are loving without knowledge. They're trying to love their child, but they aren't. Proverbs 13:24. He withholds his rod, hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. And here Paul is praying that we would have a knowledge-filled love. That kind of gives you maybe an insight into what love means. Maybe it's a little bit different than you think. Maybe it's different than our society says. It's a knowledge-filled love that's filled with an understanding of God's Word. It's filled with an understanding of God. It's filled with an understanding of people in life and really loving people genuinely in that way. How about loving people without discernment? Let's just think about what that looks like. I, I received an email this week from Mary Pulliam. She's executive director of a, of a group in town called Love, Inc. Love, I-N-C. Love in the name of Christ. And what it is, it's, a, it's an ecumenical parachurch ministry that comes alongside churches and tries to mobilize a bunch of churches so as to pool their resources together to really meet uh, needs in the community and you know it is a we're not part of their organization their organization that does help immensely because when people come looking for a handout um, I've learned enough to know that if they're looking to our church for a handout they're looking to another church for a handout and they're looking to another church for a handout and so I often direct them to Love Inc 
And they say they've tried that, they don't want that. And I say, well, if Love Inc. can't help you, then I can't help you. But here's typical an email that Mary sent out. She said, two churches recently told me that a woman has sent notes and made phone calls looking for food and a long list of other items. Her first name is Tina and she uses various last names and will sound desperate. She also has some family members who will call. Love Inc. would assist, but we've been asking since 2005 that she sign a a current release of information so that we can liaison with other agencies and ministries to prevent duplication of services. But she has consistently refused to do so because that's how she makes her living, duplicating services. I've spoken to her personally on another, a number of times and she states if she has to have a caseworker, she doesn't want help from Love Inc. If you'd like to help her with food, we advise you to ask to see the place where she's living on two separate occasions when a church or agency is asked to do this and were allowed on her premises, they could see plainly that there was an abundance of food in her apartment, though she's asking for food. In addition, we've heard stories of long lists of desired items demanded from church volunteers and in one horrible case, an unfounded, extremely disruptive accusation of sexual harassment. Part of her behavior includes insistence that she wants to attend church and she's looking for a church home. But once the church stops, help, once the church help stops, she stops attending. Now, uninformed and undisciplined love can see Tina and want to give and you know just whatever overflow with that and feed Tina's habit and provide her no help at all. She gets what she wants from the church until the church stops giving and then she's gone. And then she goes to another church and they, they start giving. And then when they stop giving, then she's gone. The story goes on, but she never gets real help because perhaps she's never loved with discerning love. And that's what Love, Inc. is trying to do, trying to give her discerning love, love which really helps to connect her with agencies where there's something, connect her with real people, but she has rejected that. So now, okay, so let's take this out of the realm of child discipline. Let's take it out of the realm of those just looking for a handout and think about what does it mean to love with a a knowledge love and love with a discerning love. I think it means, first of all, to know God well, but also means to know situations well and to know people and to know their circumstance and to discern their situation. Which, you know what? It takes time and investment and it takes effort. But that's what real love is. Real love will, will take great effort. It, it is interesting, isn't it, that Jesus always had time for people. He was never rushed. He was ready to, to dig into people's lives, to take time to really understand and to really help at point of need. It means we can't love the world, but we can love a few. We can love them deeply. And that's what God is, what Paul is praying for us, that we would love deeply that's filled with knowledge and discernment and love in a helpful way towards others we seek to give to them. All right, that's what Paul's praying for. He's praying for love, but he's also praying for purity. In fact, he's praying for this love so that purity can take place. This gives us insight on the first one. So verse 10, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. So I'm just I'm trying to I put one word that, that gets that all, that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless in the day of Christ. I just think that's a purity. The, the things that are excellent are, are pure things, are righteous things. And to be sincere and blameless in the day of Christ, that means to be, to be right and pure before Him. And that's the goal, by the way. You can just see that, how, how verse 10 starts. 
There's a goal of love, right? Praying for love so that this is the overflow of love. This is the overflow of discerning love is that you can look at things and, and cheer on the good and back off from the bad. So that we engage ourselves in good things and withhold ourselves from the bad things because we're loving with, with righteous ways. And, and, and Paul says we need to affirm those things that are pure. Orsi says affirm the things that are excellent. The NIV says that we be able to discern what is best. I think what Paul's getting at here is love that, that gains the wisdom to see life and pursue the good and the pure and the righteous and the best, both in yourself and in other people. And in order to do this, I think you really need to dwell on what's right and what's pure and what's holy. Turn over to chapter 4, verse 8. I think this is a key of how, how it is that, that love will be able to work itself out in this way. And this really begins with love towards God. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. So whatever is good out there, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely... Put your mind on those things, on the good things, not on the evil, wicked things. Then, I think you'll be able to, as Paul says in chapter 1, verse 9, you'll be able to approve the things that are excellent. Because those are the things you're thinking on, those are the things that are delighting your heart, and those are the things that resonate with you. Recently, I heard the testimony of a, a pastor's wife who recently died. And, and the, the, the blanket testimony I heard about this godly woman was this, is that when people came to her with complaints or gossips or came to her with evil intentions, it's not necessarily people of the church, it's whatever people around as she sought to minister. I don't, I don't think it was church problem related, but, but I think it's just that she was such an encouraging, positive person that when people came negatively and just complaining, well, she didn't return their thoughts. Instead, she let her mind dwell on good things. In fact, this was a testimony I heard from someone about her, is that um, she just didn't have time for that. I mean, there's so many other things. Just well, I don't, I don't have time for that. Let's just let that go by. And the testimony about her was similar to what Paul is advocating here in Philippians chapter two, verse fourteen. It says this. You can turn over there. Look at this. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. One translation says, do all things without grumbling or complaining. She just didn't have time for grumbling. Didn't have time for complaining. Her heart was set upon the right, the true, the honorable, the pure, and the lovely. And that's the testimony Paul's aiming for in verse 10. So that you may approve the things that are excellent. In order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. And notice how Paul, Paul, Paul prays for a love that's discerning as knowledgeable so that we might see and understand the good things and approve them so ultimately towards the end we'll stand blameless and sincere at the day of Christ. He's praying for pure lives today that would stand someday sincere and blameless the day of Christ. I think about this pastor, pastor's wife. She stood before Jesus. And she's able to say, or to the extent that God gave her grace to say this, but I've sought the pure and the excellent. Now I'm certainly probably lifting her up on a pedestal, but I'm, I'm, just, I'm just putting someone there who's doing it well, who I've heard of. I suppose maybe if I knew her, maybe I, that wouldn't be so much the, the testimony, but I don't know her so I can 
lift her up like that. It's something interesting just about this dwelling upon the, the positive. And we'll get this when we get to chapter 2, verse 15. Look at 14, 15, and 16. Because a similar sort of thought is coming along here to what our text today. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that, here's why, without grumbling or complaining, we do all things, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Don't complain so that you can show yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Then he says, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. In other words, look at what he's getting at here. And I look forward to opening up these words. But he's saying this, that a non-complaining, non-disputing, non-grumbling life is so different than the world that you will stand out like a sore thumb, right? Don't, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you'll prove yourselves blameless and innocent. Children of God. Because the children of the world grumble and complain. But the children of God don't. And, and you will come pure. I just tell you, the world grumbles, the world complains. Because grumbling and complaining sells. I just think of Rush Limbaugh. I don't listen to Rush Limbaugh. I don't know much about him. I'm just, from what I've heard, and I know you might be Rush Limbaugh fans, uh, that's, that's okay. I'm just saying this. You listen next time. I think that he grumbles and complains most of his show. But all that's wrong with the government, and all that's wrong with the Democrats, and all that's wrong with this, and all that's wrong with that, and all that's wrong with it, and, all, and, and that's what people want to hear. That's what people are. That is the world, grumbling and complaining. That's why he's made so much money. If we tell everyone what's bad with our government, people will listen, attracted to it, right? There's a rebel in our heart, wants something different. God's ways are different. God's people are different. Rather than being negative, God's people are blameless and innocent, lights in the world. With an end, verse 16 of chapter 2, right? Holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ... I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in, in vain because they're pure people standing before Jesus, blameless and innocent. The theme, walk righteously because you have a day of Christ coming and we don't want to stand shamefully at that day. We want to stand rightly because this day of Christ is coming. It's coming for all of you. Um, last night I went to the NIU football game with my parents. And um, I, I love football games. I, I love going to the NIU football games with whatever. Sell out yesterday. Huskies won. I think they're sixth in a row. They're ranked, whatever, 21st in the nation. They almost lost, but they did, they did a good job and they won. But I took Stephanie, right? We had a great time, Stephanie, right? And uh, one of the things she commented is, Dad, you always meet somebody that you know when you go there. And I grew up in DeKalb, so I do see every time I see multiple people. I, and this time I ran into... Uh, Someone, I've probably not seen him in 10 years. And uh, uh, I'm not really so much friends with him as I am with his, his wife, was my sister's childhood friend, and our family got to know their family pretty well. And a couple weeks earlier, at the last game I went to, uh, we ran into her, and she was telling about how her dad is real sick. My father was there, and I heard about it a little bit. My, my folks have recently then gone to see him in the hospital, and... Um, but anyway, I, I talked to her husband and said, hey, I hear your father-in-law's not doing so well. 
He's been in the hospital recently, and he said, yeah, he's, he's home now. Um, he's better, but his kidneys are failing. He's basically got dialysis for the rest of his life. His mind is sharp, but he said this. He said, it, it's really sad to see him deteriorating so quickly and right before our eyes. And uh, I said, you know what? It sounds really hard. Uh, I'm really sorry, but you know what? You're going to be there someday. I said, I'm going to be there someday. And he, it, it wasn't like to, to turn a, a football game into sour, but it was to bring sober reality to the, the fact that we all will die and we all will be in that nursing home and we all will see our bodies deteriorate. It's a point a man to die once and after that comes judgment. We'll stand before Jesus. And how are you going to stand before Jesus? As a complainer? Or as one who has set your mind on, on the righteous and the blameless, the one who has approved the things that are excellent so that you're blameless. Well, what does sincere and blameless look like? Uh, I can do no better than to read from uh, a book D.A. Carson wrote about uh, a call to spiritual reformation. It's basically a study of Paul's prayers. It's really helpful book. But he, he talks about what pursuing excellence looks like. And this is a longer quote. I'm going to read it for you because he just comes up with a lot of things, kind of a lot of, a lot of thoughts about what a pursuing a, a life that approves of excellence might, might look like. He says, the pursuit of such excellence does not turn on transparent distinctions between right and wrong. It turns rather on delicate choices that reflect one's entire value system, one's entire set of priorities, one's heart and mind. So in other words, what he's saying there, it's not, it's not a matter of a, a legalistic right and wrong here. Okay, what's the choice to make? What's the choice to make? Okay, I tithe my mint and my cumin. It's not talking about that. He's talking about how, how is it you look at life in general? How, uh, uh, are you loving God in such a way that, that life's choices are, are towards the good and the positive and the righteous. That's what he's saying. He says, that's why Paul prays that the love of the Philippians might abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. He wants their hearts and minds to become profoundly Christian. For otherwise, they will not discern to prove what is best. And perhaps some practical examples will help clarify Paul's prayer. These are just some ways. He says, what do you do with your time? How many hours a week do you spend with your children? Have you spent any time in the past two months witnessing to someone about the gospel? How much time have you spent watching television or in other forms of personal relaxation? And he didn't put it here, but I'd say, how much time have you spent on Facebook and social media and just frittering away your time? This is not bad, it's, but it's just not good or helpful. Or Are you committed in the use of your time to do what's best? Have you read in the past, what have you read in the past six months? If you've found time for newspapers or news magazines, a couple of whodunits, a novel or two perhaps, a trade journal. I just say, internet websites, what are you reading? Have you also found time for reading a commentary, some other Christian literature that will help you better understand the Bible or improve your spiritual discipline or broaden your horizons? And, and that's like saying, well, well what, what's the good and the best that I, I can do just, just this way or whether I just kind of fritter it away with my time? Are you committed in your reading ha- habits to read what is best? 
How are your relationships within your family? Do you pause now and then to reflectively think through what you can do to strengthen ties with your spouse, with your children? Do you make time for personal prayer, for prayer meetings? Have you taken steps to improve in this regard? How do you decide what to do with your money? Do you, do you give a set percentage, say 10% of your income to the Lord's work, however begrudgingly, and then regard the rest of your income as your own? Or do you regard yourself as the Lord's steward, which I think this is the biblical way. Do you regard yourself as the Lord's steward so that all the money you earn is ultimately His? Are you delighted when you find yourself able to put much more of your money into strategic ministry simply because you love to invest in eternity? Has your compassion deepened over the years so that far from becoming more cynical, you try to take concrete steps to serve those who have less than you do? Is your reading and study of the Bible so improving your knowledge of God that your wholehearted worship of the Almighty grows in spontaneity, devotion, and joy? At what points in your life do you cheerfully decide for no other reason than that you are a Christian to step outside your comfort zone, living and serving in painful or difficult self-denial? Now, behind your answers to all these questions are choices. Now, the last thing I want to do, he says, generate a load of guilt because of the choices constantly before us. Choices we frequently fail to exploit for the glory of God. You're all like me. You felt like, man, I need to make better choices in some of those things I need to. He said, I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to create guilt. He says, in fact... I hesitated over including these paragraphs for just that reason, because feelings of guilt will not by themselves help to make the right choices. They simply increase our stress and resentments. I hope, I hope you see his heart here. But he's just kind of pushing us towards, are we pursuing the things that are excellent and pure and blameless? And he says this, but if our love abounds more and more, shaped, by, shaped all the while by knowledge and moral insight then these are the kind of choices that we will be wanting to make. And we'll be wanting to make them well. They're the kinds of choices that cannot be made on the basis of mere law. They spring from a heart transformed by God's grace. And, and so what he's saying is, if you're going to pursue this life in answer to Paul's prayer, that loves with real knowledge and discernment and that approves the good things, it's going to have an impact upon the right choices you make in your life to seek to stand blameless. And Paul so wants these Philippians to make the right little choices based upon their heart to stand blameless before Christ. How's your life? Are you praying this way? Is Paul's prayer being answered in your life? Let's learn to turn my third point this morning, because it does give hope. Praying for love, Paul is. Paul's praying for purity. And finally, thirdly, verse 11, he's praying for righteousness. Verse 11, I think, is important, coming off of verse 10, which pictures of standing before Jesus. So how are we going to stand before Jesus? And lest we think that we'll stand on our own, all sincere and blameless before Jesus, on our own strength, on our own effort, by our own righteousness, Paul is quick to add this. That you're standing sincere and blameless, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So you're standing there having been filled with the righteousness of God. And this, by the way, is your only hope. It's your only hope of standing before God blameless someday. Is that we would be filled with His righteousness. That we be filled with the fruit that He produces in our lives. Paul 
Paul's heart is that God would so work in our lives that this righteous fruit would be evident. See, because at the end of the day, it's not that we try so hard to be righteous, that we stand before Jesus on our own merits. No, no, no. It's, a, it's that God is so working in our lives that our lives bring forth His, His fruit, which gives testimony that we are His. Notice how in verse 11 he describes the source of our righteousness. He talks about the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. The fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, apart from me you can do nothing. But through Jesus, His righteousness can work in our life to bring forth fruit. The idea of fruit is there in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. These are the things that the, the Holy Spirit produces as if it's a fruit tree. You're part of the Holy Spirit tree. You're going to have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and faithfulness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. And these are the, the kind of sincere and blameless things which Paul speaks about in verse 10. Right there. The blameless ways to walk, the, the loving way to walk, the peaceful way to walk, the patient way to walk, the, the self-controlled way to walk. And how does that happen? Well, verse 11 says it comes through Jesus Christ. Now, he's not detailed here, but we find out from chapter 3 that it happens through faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, turn over to chapter 3. Paul speaks about how righteousness comes through faith in Jesus. I remind you that Paul was a righteous man externally. In fact, he says in chapter 3, verse 6, says, to the righteousness which is in the law, I, Paul, was found blameless. According to the law, I was absolutely righteous. But Paul is praying for something different because he's not praying for law-keeping in chapter 1. He's praying for a, a heart's love. But no, Paul knew that all external righteousness in the world wasn't sufficient to give him a righteousness before God that would save him. And that's the point of verse 7. He says, But whatever things were gained to me, meaning his righteousness, meaning his being a Pharisee, meaning his born of the Jewish, elect, chosen people, whatever things, he says, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, Jesus and Christ and faith in Him is more important than His external religious Duties. More than that, Paul says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And verse 9 is where I want to focus your attention. May be found in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of of faith. Now, notice here how, how these words are so close. In verse 9, a righteousness not of my own, but a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness, verse 11, which comes through Jesus Christ. And I think you put even right there, the righteousness which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. He repeats that again. The righteousness which comes from God, chapter 3, verse 9, on the basis of faith. We're not going to stand before God based upon our inherent goodness. We'll stand before God ultimately because Christ was blameless and innocent. And through faith in Him, we get His righteousness. Luther called it the great exchange. 
He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Here's how it works, right? We, we believe in God and then He imputes that righteousness to us. So that when, when we believe in God, God looks down upon our faith and reckons it, considers it righteousness. That's what Paul did with Abraham. This has been the faith all the way down through the centuries that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And so if we come back to chapter 1, verse 11. This is how we stand on that day of Christ. We're filled with, with the fruit of righteousness which comes through faith in Jesus Christ and that ultimately is the praise and glory of God because it's not us. Yeah. Living the Christian life isn't about us. It's all about God. It's all about loving others. It's all about approving what God approves. It's all about standing before Him when we would say to the praise of the glory of His grace. In fact, that's what Paul speaks about in the first half of Ephesians 1. He speaks about all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. And it's all to the praise of the glory of His grace. It's all to the praise of His glory. It's to the praise of His glory. So, we get this righteousness which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It's all to the glory of God. That's how Paul's praying. Right to that end. He's praying that our love would increase. He's praying that we would be pure. And he's praying that we would have a righteousness that comes from Him. Are those prayers being answered in your life? Are you praying those prayers? That's what Paul wants for this church in Philippi. It's what I want for all of you. Let's pray. Lord, my, my closing prayer is simple. I long for all of us that we would increase in our love, that we would increase in our purity, that we would know the righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. Lord, I pray those two points of application that they would God, address us where they are. If we're not praying like this, God, help us to pray spiritual prayers like Paul did for the ultimate good of others, for ourselves and others. And Father, if these things aren't working out in our lives, I pray you'd give that desire to be there, give that flavor to be there, and that love and purity and righteousness would characterize us here at Rock Valley Bible Church. All to the praise and glory of God. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, Phil Guski is not here today. He is um, celebrating a 50th ministry anniversary of his childhood pastor. So in other words, his kids, when his pastor and his childhood pastor became a pastor, he's 50 years later now they're celebrating that. So maybe you can come to a party like that someday for me, okay? Um, other than that, small groups tonight at our house. I don't know about the Weebies, Kakis, I'm not sure they're here. Yes? Are you doing that? Okay, you guys are doing that. Uh, those are real effective. We're, in our group, we're just going to look at 12 and following. Um, help my sermon prep for next week as we just look at the text together and share one another's lives. Um, so I don't, I don't have anything else for you. Trust you can be dismissed. Have a great Lord's Day. Come on, children. We'll look at your notes.